Actually, um, uh, we've been sitting down for a little while, so if you want to, why don't you just quickly stand up and, um, and you can, yeah, wiggle, wiggle your toes, turn around. There we are. Do we have the overheads? There we are. That's great. All right. And sitting down again. <clears throat> well, last week we heard about an epoch-marking event. That was the conversion of the first Gentile, which is to say the conversion of the first non-Jew, the first non-circumcised person to the Jewish Messiah, to to Jesus of Nazareth and faith in him. Well, um, prompted by four miracles, as we heard last week, prompted by four miracles, Peter visited the home of Cornelius, the Italian, and preached the gospel to him and his household. And the Holy Spirit came down upon all who heard in power and, having been baptized in the Spirit, they were baptized also in water. And the church in Jerusalem, initially skeptical and initially disapproving that Peter should enter a Gentile home and eat with them, well, they heard the story and they soon understood and proclaimed the truth together, as we, in fact, also did. We proclaimed the truth together from Acts chapter 11, verse 18. We said together last week, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And uh, soon, as as we read this week, Uh, Gentile conversions started coming on thick and fast. You see, the believers who'd been scattered out of Jerusalem by the persecution associated with the death of Stephen, that persecution that's described in Acts chapter 8, they they preached the gospel, it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. They preached the gospel wherever they went. And you know what? From, From ancient times, there were Jewish synagogues and Jewish communities scattered all around the Mediterranean world. And so as these scattered out of Jerusalem Jewish believers in Jesus turned up at the synagogues and the communities from Alexandria through to, through, through to, 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 to um, uh, Antioch and, and so on and so forth, through, through Lebanon, um, when they turned up, obviously their friends and relatives, you know, the first question they would have been asked is, to what do we owe the pleasure of this visit? And that question was all they needed to start talking about Jesus. Uh, But of course, it didn't occur to these Jewish disciples of Christ to tell non-Jews, except that actually it did in in the ancient city of Antioch where some Cyrenian and, and Cypriot believers started telling Greeks, in other words, Gentiles, all about Jesus. And these Gentiles believed. They told them the good news that Jesus is God's special king and that all who believe in him have the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit leading to eternal life in his name. And uh, what was the outcome? outcome? Well, we're, we're told that a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Why? Well, because, verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them. The power came from God. This is a move of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas 
Well, we've heard about him twice before in the book of Acts, haven't we? His real name is Joseph, and uh, he's a Cypriot Jew. He's of the uh, tribe of Levi, um, trained as a Levitical priest. And, of course, you know, Cyprus and Antioch, they're not far apart. We're talking about the, the upper right-hand corner of the Mediterranean, as you look at it at a, on a map. And uh, um, so he was the obvious guy to send, and it was right to send him because he was, knows the area, and he's a good man, encouraging, full of the Holy Spirit, a man of great faith. And that was a good decision. What was the outcome? Verse 24, even more growth. So much so that it was all too much for one man to handle, and so he went looking for Saul. Some years earlier, Barnabas and Saul had met in Jerusalem, where Saul was doing some awesome work evangelizing in the synagogues of Jerusalem, until in response to their threat, the disciples bundled him up and sent him back to his hometown of Tarsus. Tarsus is not too far away from Antioch. They're, They're both in what we today call southern Turkey. Um, Tarsus is about 100 kilometers away from Antioch. Um, Antioch still exists. Um, It's about um, 10 kilometers from the Syrian border, about 20 kilometers from uh, the city of Aleppo that we are keeping in our prayers. Um, uh, uh, Both cities are in southern Turkey. Well, when Barnabas found Saul, he brought him back to Antioch. And so, for a whole year... These two guys met with the church and taught great numbers of people. What would have they been teaching precisely? Well, Luke doesn't tell us here, uh, but in fact we can in general terms be certain about what Saul and Barnabas would have been teaching. That they would have been teaching what um, uh, we know from their sermons preserved in the book of Acts. And also we know what they would have been teaching by way of their writings preserved in the New Testament epistles. And we also know what they would have teaching, what they would have been teaching by way of the instructions that they left for others, such as Timothy, as to what to teach in their absence. So we know actually with great clarity and detail what they would have been teaching. And basically, they would have been teaching what Saul describes elsewhere in the book of Acts as the whole counsel of God. In other words, everything that God has revealed by way of special revelation in Jesus Christ. And this would have included, it would have included um, teaching them, firstly, all about Jesus and what he did and what he said. And that teaching has been preserved for us also in in the first four books of the New Testament, the books that we call the Gospels. So they would have been teaching basically the Gospels. What else would they have been teaching? Well, Barnabas, he's a Levitical priest. He's trained in the Old Testament. So is is Saul. He was trained as a Pharisee. They would have been teaching teaching their way through the Old Testament, showing how it's all fulfilled in Jesus. They would have been teaching the Old Testament. What else would they have been teaching? Well, the third thing they would have been teaching is how now to live as a follower of Jesus in the age of the Spirit. Stuff that's actually also preserved for us um, in, in their writings, which we call the New Testament epistles. In other words, Saul and Barnabas would have spent a whole year teaching them what we now call the Bible. And it's extremely important for us to recognize and understand and see here the fundamental action that when it comes to discipling people, 
who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, the fundamental action is teaching. Teaching what? Teaching the Bible. That's how you grow Christians. Discipleship, in a nutshell, teach the Bible. Sure, there's plenty of objections to that, but it's basically what the Bible teaches. And what's what we see? How do you grow Christians? Teach the Bible. What was the outcome? Verse 26. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Well, obviously, the townsfolk, um, they decided that this strange group of people needed a new name. And why would they have needed a new name? Well, actually, because something extraordinary was happening. Um, this new name, it's, it's a simple name. It's a blend of a Greek word, Christos, meaning Christ or anointed one or Messiah, and uh, a Latin adjective, Janos, meaning belonging to. Um, a, a common formula in the ancient world, Christian simply means belonging to Christ. But why was a new word required? I mean, after all, they'd previously been Jews, but suddenly what you actually had with all these people gathering and they were treating each other like brother, like sister, but what you had these bunch of Jews who previously, you know, they just, they just couldn't get over the fact that they were God's elect, superior to everyone else on the face of the planet, that you couldn't be better than a Jew, and then another group of people who were Romans, and it was the Roman Empire, and to be a, a citizen of Rome was like the best thing ever, but suddenly, it, it, once they become followers of Jesus, they, those things just forgotten, they just don't matter. They treat each other like brother and sister, and um, they need a new label because because something's happened to them that trumps all other labels. A distinct name for a distinct group of people, Christians, those belonging to Christ. And then in verse 27, we suddenly have something that perhaps we were not expecting. During this time, some prophets came down from Antioch, sorry, from Jerusalem, to Antioch. Uh, Luke, in his book, has mentioned prophets frequently so far. I mean, we're no strangers to the word. In, in chapters 1 to 10, there are 15 references to prophets. But you know what? In every single instance, the reference is to Old Testament prophets. <clears throat> men like Joel and Isaiah and Amos. Men who belonged to a movement that was known to have closed down by God some 400 years before Jesus. And again, even after this chapter, almost all of the time when Luke uses the word prophet or prophets, he is referring to this ancient closed-set group of people. So then when, when we read that some prophets came down from Jerusalem, we could be forgiven for interrupting and say, oh, what?! Some prophets came down from Jerusalem. Really? They too had risen from the dead, had they? Uh, who exactly? Samuel? Moses? David? Who are, which prophets? What prophets? But, but that's not what Luke means, is it? Nevertheless, this is the first mention in the book of Acts of something new. A, a, a new, living, New Testament prophetic ministry. And it won't be the last mention either. In chapter 13, verse 1, we read that indeed the church in Antioch had prophets and teachers. Isn't that interesting? 
Two chapters earlier, in chapter 11, they have to import both their teachers and their prophets, um, alien teachers and prophets. Two chapters later, Antioch has indigenous prophets and teachers. In Luke, uh, sorry, in Acts chapter 15, Luke mentions two guys, Judas and Silas, who were prophets. And in chapter 21, we hear that the four daughters of the deacon Philip were prophets. And in that same chapter, we meet for the second time a prophet named Agabus. So um, who were these prophets and what was their job? Well, I, I want to start to answer that question by saying that these guys, they had a very different job to the Old Testament prophets. All those famous names from the Old Testament like Isaiah and Amos and Ezekiel, they did a different job. The Old Testament ministry is described in prospect, in in looking forward, by by Moses. When when he says, he's talking about a conversation in which the Lord is speaking to him. And he says, the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth. The Old Testament prophets received a message from God, either hearing God's voice orally with their ears or seeing a vision or dreaming a dream in which God spoke, such that they were able to say to the people of Israel, Thus saith the Lord. In other words, this is exactly what God has told me to tell you. Um, And as I said, the last of these Old Testament prophets lived about 400 years before Jesus was born. Ministry was closed down, except that, additionally, this ministry was brought to fulfillment in Jesus, who spoke God's words because he was God's son. And so, this is how that Old Testament prophetic ministry is described in retrospect, looking back, by the author Of the book of Hebrews, he writes, In the past, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus brings the Old Testament prophetic ministry to its fulfillment and to its conclusion. So then, whoever these New Testament prophet guys are, they cannot be an extension of the Old Testament prophetic ministry. So who are they then? What is this New Testament prophetic ministry? Well, actually, the clue is given in the Old Testament by the prophet Joel, as we, as we read, as we heard this morning. Um, God spoke to Joel, and Joel repeated it when he said, And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And Peter preached on this text on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, saying, this is that. It's happening. In other words, 
we now live in the age of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Bible, what does the Holy Spirit do? Answer, he speaks. That's what he does. What do you reckon is going to happen if you fill a bunch of people with the Holy Spirit? They're going to prophesy. It's obvious. Paul unpacks this further in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. And about what this might look like in church, Paul says, ah, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. And to the church in Thessalonica, Paul writes, Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. And and we see that when the church gets this particular form of ministry right, it can be an extraordinarily powerful evangelistic tool. Uh, Paul, a little bit later in, in 1 Corinthians 14, writes, If, say, an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everybody's prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So then, in contrast to the Old Testament prophets, New Testament prophets don't have to offer exactly the words of God, but rather they are moved by the Holy Spirit to say things that in, in turn will be weighed by the body. Their job is to receive and communicate revelations, not all revelations, but revelations that are specifically strengthening, comforting, encouraging. Well, let's see this in practice. Uh, Back to our text in the book of Acts. We notice, first of all, in verse 27, that it wasn't just one prophet who turned up, but it was a small group of them. That'll be necessary, because New Testament prophets always act in concert. They're not solo instruments. Secondly, one of them, Agapus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted Uh, That's the word the NRV translators have chosen uh, in their translation. It's a good choice. It's a logical choice. The the Greek word is literally signified. In other words, he indicated, suggested, implied, signified, somehow. He did not say, thus saith the Lord. In Acts chapter 21, Agapus, this same Agapus is going to come over to Paul, take his belt off him, bind his own hands and feet with Paul's belt and say to Paul, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are going to bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. Actually, that's not what happened. The Gentiles came and rescued Paul as the Jewish leaders were attempting not to bind him with his belt, but rather beat him to death. 
And the Gentiles stepped in and saved him. Agapus was correct in the general sense, but inaccurate with respect to details. And furthermore, Agapus did this whole thing with the belt in order to try to dissuade Paul from going to Jerusalem. Paul was not dissuaded. He disobeyed God's prophet, just as Jesus wanted him to. So, returning to Acts chapter 11, we have no idea how Agapus signified that a famine was coming, but it did come during the reign of Claudius, who reigned as Caesar from 41 to 54 AD. However, you know, historians uh, do not record a severe famine that spread over the entire Roman world at that time, uh, but Josephus and some other historians do recall do record a famine in Judea, A.D. 45 to 48, uh, as a result of a series of poor harvests, such that, in fact, some people in Jerusalem were even dying of malnutrition at that time. So, once again, we can see that Agapus, he's right in the general sense, but perhaps not strictly accurate with respect to all of the details. What was the outcome of this prophetic ministry? Well, verses 29 to 30, the disciples... Decided. That's interesting. The decision is made by and shared by the whole church. The decision is not attributed to elders or to the leadership, but to the whole church, which would have included elders. What did they do? I don't know. I'm guessing. But I'm guessing that they weighed carefully what was said, presumably praying, presumably asking for confirmation, which presumably they got. And they went, yeah, great. What are we going to do? Well, they took up a collection. According to means, a collection was taken. And, and actually, we need to notice that. That's really great. It's, they've, got, they've understood. Saved by grace, through faith, for works. Prepared in advance for us too. Christian faith is always evidenced by good deeds. We're, we're not saved by works for grace which is what we usually assume, but rather we're saved by grace for works. What else happened? Well, they sent their gift to the elders of the church in Judea by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. They entrusted their gift not to the whole church, but rather to uh, a smaller body, the eldership, who had authority for the right ordering of the church's affairs. Well, that's a bit of a tour through um, Acts chapter 11. Uh, Let's digest and conclude. I'm going to make five points. My first is this. Um, We must pray. Um, Thinking about the beginning of that passage, we must pray for a move of the Holy Spirit in Perth and in Australia. It's happened before. In the days of Billy Graham, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people came to faith in Jesus Christ and changed the nature and character of this nation. It's happened before, it will happen again. As this passage shows us, when vast numbers of people come to faith in Jesus Christ, it is the Lord's hand. Sure, there are human actors too, brave souls doing what no one else thought to do. But we must be praying for a move of the Holy Spirit on Perth and Australia. Second, We must remember and take to heart that the fundamental action in discipleship is teaching the Bible. Do you go to a church where the fundamental thing is teaching the Bible? 
think I do. Not sure. I think I do. hope I do. I hope you do too. Because, because actually the church keeps on inventing what it thinks is the main thing, but actually the main thing is teaching the Bible. You grow Christians by teaching the Bible. Now, many people believe that the Anglican church in Australia is in serious decline. But every Anglican church I know that remains true to this principle is not declining. In fact, most of them are thriving. Thirdly, this text sees the birth of a new identity. The Christian identity. A new label that trumps all others. And it's important that we understand the beauty, the clarity, and the wonder of that. Suddenly all other labels are inadequate. And this text reminds me this morning that my Christian identity is my primary identity. Stephen, the one belonging to Christ. Uh, That trumps my nationality, it trumps my skin color, my tribal language, my gender, my educational level, my family name, my socio-demographic group, my subculture, my sexual orientation, blah, 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 blah. All other, gen- ident- sorry, all other identity markers at all are trumped by this. I am, first of all, a Christian. And I'm a brother to all who carry that same tag. So actually, I should remember that if I'm meeting someone, that's the first thing they need to know about me. Fourth, although Bible teaching is the foundational ministry of the church, it's not the only ministry. In fact, there are many. This text introduces us for for the first time to the New Testament prophetic ministry. How do I know this? I know this because my calling is to teach the Bible and I'm teaching today what the Bible has to say about this. In other words, when we teach the Bible, we'll discover that teaching the Bible is not the only valid Christian ministry. And yet, the way to get all those other valid Christian ministries up and running is by teaching the Bible. Of all of the people in this room, I'm the one who's most likely to have difficulty and problems with this and I'm going to find it hard to understand because I'm a Bible teacher. And as my friend Malcolm Plaisto says, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every job's a nail. And prophets and pastors, boy, they, they typically don't get on well at all. I mean, if I was Barnabas at Antioch and I was working hard to teach the Bible and suddenly a bunch of charismatics drop in from Jerusalem and start standing up in the middle of a sermon and signifying that a severe famine was coming upon the entire Roman world, I just turn to Paul and say, what the heck am I supposed to do with that? Someone who goes to this church was telling me recently about their prayer life. And uh, when they pray, when they pray, God starts sharing with them big time what's on His heart, um, telling them about the plans He has for Perth, and they're extraordinary. Well, this same person was um, attending another church recently, not this one, another church recently, and and he he started crying because he just knew that God was calling him to approach the senior pastor and say. I don't think God wants you to go ahead with your building program. And as a pastor myself, I just dread something like that happening here. 
I mean, I just turn to my wardens and say, what the heck am I supposed to do with that? I know that the pastor did not cancel the building program. And I don't know if God wanted him to or not. But I am quite sure that God did want that prophet from our congregation to say what he had to say. Here's the thing. When you put prophets in charge of churches, actually churches go off the rails. But pastors do need to listen, treat prophecies with respect, have them weighed, and then obey Jesus. Not listen to prophets and obey prophets, but rather listen to prophets and obey the Jesus who sent the prophet. It's a different thing. Because when, when you put prophets in charge, and like, for example, when you make a prophet a preacher, they often choose to begin their sermons with things like, you know, <clears throat> I had my message all written out for this morning, but last night God woke me up. Blah, blah, blah. You may have heard something like that yourself. Such introductions in some churches are the authenticating sign to show you that you're about to receive the real deal. But such churches typically forget that the real thing is a pastor who teaches the Bible. Even if I may say so myself. (laughs) On the other hand, many people believe that the Christian church in Australia is in serious decline. But in actual fact, there are many churches in Perth and around Australia where people attend each weekend in the thousands, not in the tens, not in the hundreds, but in the thousands. By and large, what these churches are getting right is the New Testament prophetic ministry. And just as the Bible says, when this is done right, unbelievers will fall down and exclaim, God is really among you. Good at prophetic ministry, not good at Bible teaching. And if that is true, then it is consistent with what the surveys tell us, which is that, generally speaking, the Australian megachurches are great at evangelizing and converting people, but not great at discipling people. As for me, I don't know a single church in Australia that gets this balance right. I'm not saying that there aren't some. I'm just saying I don't know which ones they are. Uh, Bible teaching as foundational, prophetic ministry, up and running, not taking over, not not center stage, but nevertheless being listened to and recognized. Uh, You know, actually left to my own devices, I'd think that that was impossible. I'm sorry, that's outside of my experience, a church that gets that balance right. I don't know of one. I'm not saying they don't exist. I just don't know of one. And in fact, I'd probably therefore conclude that it was impossible if it wasn't for the simple evidence of this text today, Acts chapter 11, Bible teaching and prophecy working hand in hand, no problems. Fifthly and and lastly, uh, this passage reminds us that we are saved by grace for good works. When we've received, it's time to give. Uh, The Lord be with you. 
or rather the Lord is with us, may that be exceedingly obvious and people fall down and shout, God is truly with us. Amen.